Here's the reality. When our Lord breaks the first seal, His return is imminent. He is at the prophetic door. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. If you've followed our study in Revelation so far, you know we're going at a slow and methodical pace in an effort to fully grasp and understand as much as possible. Today we begin setting the stage for the opening of the seven seals as told in Revelation chapter 6. We'll do a lot of reviewing of what we've learned so far, but this will help us have the best chance of accurately interpreting this difficult passage of prophetic scripture. For this study, we strongly encourage you to download the included PDF slide deck or watch the video, either on Sermon Audio or our website, as the graphics will provide much better context than audio alone. Our website is truthmatterschurch.org. Leading our study, here is Pastor Alex. You guys will notice that you have two sets of PowerPoint decks. Originally, it was one. But given we're covering a lot of ground, I wanted to split up our material so that we can absorb the information that we will be going over. So just like when we exposit Scripture, I take the Scripture in pieces, like let's say a verse in pieces or a passage, and then put it back together. Kind of in that same way, I've done that for this study. So with that, For our study today, I thought it would be beneficial for us to have kind of this this recap of our journey and intro into these seven seal judgments. Hard to believe that we started this journey a year and a half ago and counting. And before we even started our journey, we established our disciplines. I called them our 10 rules of engagement that we must abide by. And what informed those principles is what I believe was modeled by both the Old Testament and New Testament authors. So what I'm trying to do is stay true to those principles. How did the Old Testament and New Testament authors of Scripture, how did they handle Scripture? And we're doing the same thing. So before we even started this journey, we established that because I knew we were going to get into Pandora's box as far as the interpretation, the the different views out there. And the last thing I wanted was to give us another view. And when we started this journey, we covered the basics. We looked at the book of Revelation as it's to be viewed. What is this book of Revelation about? Who wrote it, when, and to whom it was written to? What was this book's intended purpose? And how is it to be interpreted? And last but not least, what do I need to know to understand it? And on this last point, I said, these are, I mean, we need to know as much scripture as we can to even have a chance to understand this very mysterious book. But these are at least, I would call, these are the bare minimums, meaning if we didn't have this understanding, the book of Revelation might as well be in another language to you. And these were the bare minimums. I would say these aren't, these aren't really negotiable. Meaning, if you don't have a solid understanding of these three things, I would advise you, and, I, and if that was the case, me, 
Don't even try to study the book of Revelation because it'll even throw, it'll even confuse you even more. But if we had at least these basic understandings of the Abrahamic covenant, and we understand that the people of Israel will always be the people of Israel, and that the land of Israel was given to them as an everlasting possession, and that Abraham is the forefather of faith for both the believing Jews and Gentiles. If we have that, and we accept that, good. Another thing we need to make sure we have at least a a good understanding, and that's the Mosaic Covenant, the law. When the law was given to the people of Israel through Moses, that covenant was between God and His people. And it came with blessing and cursing. If the people of Israel obeyed the law, they will be blessed. If the people of Israel disobey the law, they will be cursed. If you don't understand that premise, you won't understand the book of Revelation or Daniel or any other book where it deals with God disciplining them for their rebellion. They are still under the Mosaic Covenant. God entered into a covenant with his people, the Mosaic Covenant. And it gets confusing because we are under this new covenant under Christ's blood, which he inaugurated, but that doesn't mean that the old covenant is fully null and void. Now, it is passing away, and and the, the new covenant is far superior than the old covenant. Nonetheless, the Mosaic covenant still has its plan and purpose concerning God and his people. And this last third thing, we, we need to get this. The Davidic covenant that God made with David and this promised Davidic kingdom. If we don't have a solid understanding of this Davidic kingdom, if we think somehow that the kingdom is just within you and that's it, then you might as well not read the book of Revelation. You might, not, you might as well disregard Revelation chapter 20 and this thousand year reign of Christ on earth. We need to get this, that God promised to make David's name great and to cut off all his enemies. And God promised to appoint a place for Israel and God himself promised that he will plant them in peace and safety. And God will make a house for David and raise up his descendant after him. And that David's son will build a house for God's name and God will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The fulfillment of this covenant and promise will come to pass when the visions spoken of in the book of Revelation comes to pass. If we don't have a solid understanding of this, I would say there's really no hope in comprehending this book. And that's why we covered this in the beginning. So then from there, we're like, okay, those are the bare minimums we needed to know. Then as far as our Daniel series, I said, okay, well, we got that. But Daniel, which of his visions touches end times that takes us to the very end? And I tried to narrow it down so we don't spend too long in the book of Daniel, although that might not have been a bad idea. But we then studied the great statue, the four beasts, 
the ram and the goat, the little horn, and who can forget the 70 weeks prophecy. And the reason why we started with Daniel's vision, the scripture itself said that Daniel understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Not to mention, our Lord himself singled out Daniel in his great Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And I argued this, that the book of Daniel is the cornerstone of all end times prophecy. Meaning, on this subject and this study of the end times, which single book is the cornerstone? Not to say that there aren't other scriptures that are part of that foundation or are built, but you know what the cornerstone is? And I argue this, it's the book of Daniel. Let me say this another way. If we don't understand Daniel, just like the other things, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and Daniel, we, won't, we will have no clue what Revelation's about, and your guess is as good as mine. I argue this, that the book of Daniel gives us the most comprehensive end times prophecy. It's the most comprehensive. It gives us so much detail. And a lot of it is still beyond me, but there's a lot of detail there. Talking about these figures that will arise on the scene and what their character is like and what they will do to a great level of detail. And not to mention, Daniel's 70-week prophecy takes us to the very end of the age. That's why I argue that Daniel is the cornerstone of all end times prophecy, and that's why we spent a lot of time in Daniel's book. And this was the goal when we set out for Daniel. This was our goal. I wanted to demonstrate to us how the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament. I think we can agree with that. But you know what, what, what's sad and what I'm finding is there's a lot of teachings out there that doesn't have the Old Testament as the foundation. You know what they put the foundation? The church. No, the church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Christ himself as the cornerstone. The church doesn't supersede the people of Israel. In fact, it was a mystery that we had clues and hints in the Old Testament, but at the preaching of Paul's gospel, it was fully revealed that there is now this institution that we call the church in which the Spirit of God indwells believers. But that was the goal. I wanted to show that the Old Testament is the foundation of the new. I didn't erase the Old Testament. I'm bringing it in. And God's progressive revelation concerning the end times, this is an important point. And I've said this time and time again. All of world events that are happening, what is at the epicenter of all world events, as far as God is concerned, it's centered around the disciplining of God's chosen people, Israel. I also wanted to demonstrate when we went to our Daniel mini-series was how do we study mysterious visions? And as I listen back, and as you're hopefully now accustomed to, I'm using Scripture. I'm putting Scripture alongside of itself. I'm going to the original. And then I'll try to find, okay, if this is in the Greek, what is the equivalent Hebrew word? If it's in Aramaic, what's the equivalent Hebrew word? Use that to help gain some insight into whatever it is we're learning. 
Here's another thing, and this will hopefully start to frame our study as we get into these seals. The book of Revelation is a continuation of Daniel's vision to John's vision. And I made this comment before, Revelation can be called Second Daniel, just a different author. And the goal of our other, one of the other goals of our Daniel miniseries, and this was for kicks and giggles, I even attempted to guess when the world might end using Daniel's 70-week prophecy. We're going to refer to a slide on that a little later, and we can talk more about it. But whenever that 70th week is complete, we're at the end of the age. And that Daniel series took us about four months. So in these four weeks, I listened to four months worth of our studies, re-listening. In the beginning of last year, we officially opened up the book of Revelation. And we studied Revelation the same way we studied Daniel. Remember I used kind of this illustration of uh, the Karate Kid? And for those of us who are familiar with that movie, the way Daniel LaRusso was trained in karate was anything but karate, but he didn't even realize it. And his teacher, Mr. Miyagi, taught him karate kind of in a backhanded way. When we studied Daniel, it was as if we were attempting to kind of move up the belt scale to black belt. And as we exercise our disciplines in Daniel, we continued that with Revelation. And it took us four months to get through the first chapter. And right off the gate, we came across several treasures of truth. So when we open up the book of Revelation, it's pretty magnificent in the first chapter. It covers a breadth of things. You know how I said I made the comment we are to generally approach Revelation chronologically. Well, the first chapter was a lot of summary that took us to the end or takes us to the middle of the book or even towards the end of the book. And here are some of those highlights. We hear this. Him who is, who was, and who is to come. And one of the treasures we've learned is that not only applies to the Lord Jesus, but that also applies to God our Father. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And when we hear John utter these phrases, He is coming with the clouds. I'm arguing Jesus is going to come in the clouds. Just as the Lord, our Lord, when He, was, when he ascended, and was taken by a cloud back to heaven. And even the angels told his disciples, why are you gazing in heaven? This same Jesus that you saw come in heaven will come back in the same way. So when John says, he is coming with the clouds, it's not just fancy, poetic, apocalyptic poetry. Our Lord Jesus is coming with the clouds. And when John says, every eye will see him, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And that lends itself to a truth that we will confirm as we go further in these studies. And that is, for those who pierced him, in order for them to see Jesus come in the clouds, they need to be raised by them. And they will. And we took this little detour in the tribulation. 
There's different types of tribulations for different groups. There was Jerusalem's tribulation concerning the people and the land of Israel, and that also includes the abomination of desolation, which we will continue to learn and unpack as we move forward. There is the church tribulation that John himself says that he was a partaker in the tribulation. They were still the church when they were persecuted either by Jews or in the case, let's say, with Roman emperors. They were experiencing tribulation. And then there's also a great global tribulation that will be encompassed in these seals. And sadly, when we study the book of Revelation, oftentimes those distinctions aren't made. But that was insightful for us to keep us on the right track. And then last but not least in chapter 1, when Jesus was described as the one with the keys of death and of Hades. And I argued that also wasn't just fancy apocalyptic poetry and that he has authority over these angels we also known as death and Hades. And he is the one with all angels in subjection to him, including the death angel and the angel over Hades. Then it took us the remaining eight months of that year, last year, to get through chapters 2 and 3 and to get us through the seven letters to the seven churches. I won't summarize what we've learned there, but that study in and of itself proved to be insightful. And the sum of it is, and I argued this, that these seven letters to the seven churches was like a parable that our Lord communicated using actual, historical, physical churches that communicated truth that was relevant to them, but also had truths and prophecies that take us to the end. So these letters to these seven churches is instructive for all churches of all time in how our Lord looks and examines His churches And for the first couple of months of this year, we spent time walking through the majestic scene in heaven and spent quite a bit of time in the very throne room in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. And we got well acquainted with the one who sits on the throne. Who is he? Amen. The Father. The book sealed with seven seals. The Lamb as if slain is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. The four living creatures and the 24 elders. We got introduced to a strong angel and the seven spirits of God who are also seven angels. And we also learned that in the throne room, it's a pretty big throne because there was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of heaven's angels. It was a majestic scene. So it's centered, or at least the scene with the throne of our Father into center of it. And having wrapped up chapter 5, it now takes us to chapter 6 and the breaking of the first seal. Now, why did I just give us an overview of the journey that we've taken so far? And here's where I'm going to be transparent. And this is because after pouring in hundreds of hours in study over the past two years, two and a half years, I wanted to do my best 
with the Spirit's help to equip us for this very study. When I set out to commit to teaching this book, I was scared to death to teach this book, in particular when we start to get to the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. So my goal was I wasn't going to rush it because I wanted to have an idea where the seven seals followed by the seven trumpets and the seven bowls in John's vision falls when we compare it to Daniel's vision. Let me say this another way. If there's any teaching out there that doesn't frame these seals with Daniel's vision, then how can you have a high level of confidence that what you're arguing is the truth. So my goal was to have at least an idea with the help of Daniel's vision to see, okay, when will this first seal fall in prophecy? Because here's the reality. When our Lord breaks the first seal, His return is imminent. He is at the prophetic door. So someone might argue, well, the first seal was already broken sometime after the death of Christ, even before us. And I'll leave that comment on the side. We will see, well, where does Daniel place his visions and where does John's vision fall within Daniel's vision? And whatever epoch of time that is, that's where we're going to leave it. And now also, given the time and preparation to get to this point, and that we've probably forgot most, if not all, of our learnings for the past two years. I want to do a brief reintroduction of our summary slides from our Daniel series. We're not, we, this is where we landed. After exercising our disciplines, here's what, where the vision took us. And we're going to allow that to start laying the foundation of our eschatology. This great statue vision, you're probably familiar with this slide. Here was a summary. When Nebuchadnezzar was rattled to his very being of this vision, it rattled him to the point where he made an impossible ask to the Chaldeans and the conjurers and the sorcerers of that day to not only interpret the dream he had, but to tell him the dream. And none within his circle were able to do that. And they even said that's an impossible ask. He said, if you don't tell me, you will be torn limb from limb. But he goes, but if you do tell me, then he will richly reward them. We know the story. They didn't know. So he gave the order to start having them killed. And this would include Daniel and his three friends. And when Daniel appealed to to God and was given the inter- not only he was given what the dream was but the interpretation of that dream here's the summary that great statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and then that was revealed to Daniel and the interpretation it represented historical kingdoms but it also was a picture of the end times super i call them super world powers the kingdoms of, of kingdoms and kings who Israel's Messiah will crush and put to an end and set up an everlasting kingdom on earth. How did we arrive to that conclusion? First of all, it's historically verified. 
of the four kingdoms, beginning with Babylon, that followed. And I took a little snip here from Daniel 2. This is a nugget of truth. Part of that vision, when this rock or mountain that was cut off and crushed the feet and all this, and the statue began to crumble. The reason how we can know that this vision wasn't just historical, but it was also depicting the end time world superpower and the kingdom, kingdoms and kings whom will be here when Israel's Messiah returns to crush them and put an end to their dominion and set up an everlasting kingdom on earth. Because here's a little nugget on Daniel 2, verse 35. It says, Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time. And you'll also see on this picture, Daniel also says, Those kings. Not just the kings or kingdoms that might have been represented on the feet and toes, but in the days of those kings. This is a picture of what John calls Mystery Babylon. That'll be here at the end. I did come across this resource, and what I liked about it was it was color-coded, and this was intended to capture the expansion of the Roman Empire over time. And I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again. The teaching is only as good as its resource. And if I come across a resource that could help us understand the Scripture in its historical context, we will layer that in. But given that new resource and how it was color-coded, I argued that the nations in play to make up the end times world superpowers were countries and nations on that side of the world, on the eastern side of the world. But I do want to also add these new countries who are in play. They're noted in the white box. And then one that is now implicated by this vision is the UK. Meaning, this great statue that is representative of the end-time world superpowers, that the UK is also in play to being part of that world power. Four beasts. Now this one's going to be very instrumental for us. We can, when we concluded our four beasts study, here was the conclusion. The four beasts in Daniel's visions are four kings during the end times who will arise from the great Mediterranean Sea or Mediterranean nations. And these four kings that Daniel saw in this vision are God's instruments to punish Israel for their sin and rebellion. And this fourth king, the Scripture tells us, will be a fourth kingdom comprised of ten kings of which the little horn will arise from, uprooting the first three kings. And I'll talk a little bit more about the little horn later. And when we use the Scripture to try to help pinpoint who are the likely candidates of who these kings were. If the Scripture called a people or a nation, a lion, a bear, a leopard, I stayed with that. Went to their, their most of ancient times, like who were they then and who are they now, whoever they are now, and if they're going to be kingdom kings that are from that land. That's how we find ourselves settled more towards the Middle East 
north of the Middle East towards Greece, but then also on North Africa, including Egypt and Libya. In our ram and goat study, here was the conclusion of that. When Daniel saw this vision of this ram with two horns and this goat with one conspicuous horn, here was the interpretation. In that vision, the ram and the goat represents, just like the great statue, historical and end times kingdoms and kings who conquered and will conquer the Mediterranean nations and kings. So this would include Alexander the Great as part of this historical representation of what this vision was revealing. And the ram represents ancient Media Persia and the goat represents ancient Yavon. But here what I, here's what I have highlighted. The small horn false prophet, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later, is a descendant from the goat and will be given authority over the regular sacrifice and Israel's last king in the end times. More on that as we progress. And you remember this sketch? When Daniel in his vision saw the four winds stirring up the great sea, and then he saw subsequent to that this vision of the ram and the goat. What I wanted to illustrate here is their origin. One is coming up from the sea and one is coming from the earth or land. And this parallels when we get to Revelation 13 when the beast from the sea, as John describes it, arrives on the scene. And there was also this beast from the earth. So there's this parallel in demonstrating that what Daniel saw came to fruition when we get to Revelation 13. And here was the conclusion of that wanted sketch. And I'm going to make a little comment. You notice on the little horn, you've never heard me use this word, but I'm going to start to being intentional. I call him anti-God, not anti-Christ. I'll talk a little bit more why I'm starting to make that distinction when we get a little further in our study. But the beast from the sea or the little horn will come from this fourth beast that Daniel saw, the one with iron teeth, claws of bronze, and then will become the most fearful world superpower that this world has ever known, where Daniel describes this kingdom as trampling down and crushing the whole earth. It is from that kingdom that three of its first kings will be uprooted, and then this little horn will arrive on the scene. I'm calling him anti-God, and you'll see why. And the goat on the right, there's this also this prominent figure, this beast who arises from the earth. He's the small horn in this vision. And I've made this argument, if you remember. A lot of our Bible study resources and tools assume that the little horn from the fourth beast in Daniel's vision is the small horn that was communicated in the vision of the ram and the goat. And just by going back to this sketch, that was my whole point. No, they're completely different. And Revelation 13 confirms that they're two different figures. And we'll learn more about that as we progress. But here's, here's how I arrived to that deduction. That the small horn or the beast from the earth, I call him the false prophet. If there's going to be an antichrist, 
it's this person. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So I want us to get in our minds, there is an anti-God in the place of God, and there's an anti-Christ in the place of Messiah or Christ. And how do I know that that small horn that Daniel saw in this vision was at the end times? It says it right there. When the, Dan- when the angel gave Daniel the interpretation in Daniel 8, and I'll pick it up in verse 19, he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So the small horn in this vision is a figure that will arrive on the scene towards the end. And that's, in this case, takes us to Revelation 13. So it's still far away from us. Oh, this one's a doozy. Okay, there's a lot going on on this chart. What we've learned from our 70 weeks prophecy study is that Daniel, when he was given this vision of this 70 weeks, do you recall how we got 70 weeks? Yes. Because when Daniel realized, when he was reading the books, including Jeremiah, and that 70 years of judgment has been pronounced against his people for failing to obey the law. Remember, with the law comes blessing and cursing. They were to give the land rest every seventh year and not plow the land and let it rest. Well, there was 70 of them. And because of their disobedience, God pronounced 70 years of captivity. So when Daniel came to realize that that 70 years is up, he then appealed to his God and saying, be merciful now. I mean, like what you did was, was right and just and we deserve this. But now he appeals on behalf of himself and his end, the people of Israel. And in response to that prayer, they're like, well, yes, that 70 years as far as captivity has been fulfilled, but there's also now these 70 weeks that have been extended to it. And in that interpretation of that 70 weeks, it represented 490 years carved out in human history. And it's the total length of Israel's punishment for their sin, unfaithfulness, even including killing their Messiah. And once the 490 years of punishment on this history clock has been fulfilled, God will rescue them, make a full atonement for their sin, and establish his kingdom on earth. So this 70-week prophecy is profound because it gives us an endpoint of the end of this age as we know it. And let me talk a little bit about this chart. The clock started when there was a decree issued. When we studied this prophecy, we came to learn that there are several decrees that were given concerning going back to their land and rebuilding the temple and the, and, and the city. And where we landed, because this particular decree had all of the components that was given to Daniel in this vision, was in the 20th year of Artaxerxes Longamanus. Meaning, if that is in fact the starting point of this prophecy, then 490 years from there, we can deduce what is the end of that punishment and 
taking us to the end of the age in the Messi- uh, Messianic kingdom. But if, you, if we start here on the far left of this chart, you see I put that cross in red where our Lord was crucified, A.D. 30. 69 weeks of this 70 weeks prophecy has been fulfilled. But what we learned was like, well, what happened to this 70th week? Because if the 70th week is supposed to be at A.D. 37, then their punishment needs to be ended and Christ can now rescue them and plant them back in their land in peace and safety. But we know that that didn't happen, did it? In fact, 40 years later, they were ravaged and ransacked by the Romans, well documented in history. And what we learned was that, wait, well, what happened to this 70th week? And when we took the principle from Numbers, this day-for-a-year principle for their day of disobedience in the wilderness corresponds to a year of wandering in the wilderness. So for 40 days, they rebelled against God and against Moses. And because of that, 40 years, they they wandered in the wilderness until they died out. When we took that principle a day for a year, we took that 70th week and we used prophetic year of 360 days in a prophetic year because there's in a prophetic month, there's 30 days. If we took that principle, then what God did was he added to their punishment seven years times 360 days. That's 25, 20 days. But if we go from the day-to-a-year principle, then that's 25, 20 years. 907,200 days. And if that calculation is correct, and if that was the right starting point at 454 B.C., then the end of that punishment would take us in early 2030, 2031. And I told us, please don't sell your things and and say, oh, we have this teacher who's claiming uh, when the end of the world... I'm not claiming anything. I just It's for kicks and giggles, man. But there is an end. We, amen? And Daniel's vision takes us to the end, and it's just, do we have the right information and resource? This is the framework that Daniel has to work with. Now, is this gospel? No. But if we can get an accurate time of what date to use at the issuing of a decree when this prophecy started and we just add 907,200 days from there, you can feel pretty good that that's when the 70th week is over. Nowhere in Scripture does God just pause the clock. Nowhere. History is moving according to His will and plan. And He has a way in which He determines and calculates the right punishment or discipline in this case concerning his people. But in this chart, what I, tried, what I wanted to depict is between Christ's death and see this period, I put a little time uh, bar there, there's going to be this final period of the indignation, which is towards the end and right before the coming of our Lord. But what's going to happen 
when we learn from Daniel is there's a king that's going to arise, wage war, and destroy Jerusalem and make the sanctuary desolate. So in order for us to get to that final period of the indignation, Israel needs to be performing sacrifices, animal sacrifices, presumably through the reconstruction of a temple. But whenever, once that is happening, Daniel tells the king will arise, wage war, and destroy Jerusalem and its sanctuary and make it desolate. But there's going to come a time of the end of that indignation. That's when we are at the end of the completion of Daniel's 70th week. Then their punishment has been made full for their unbelief and killing Messiah. Israel will repent. Does anyone want to care to guess who they are? 144,000. They've repented and they were sealed and they were preserved. So now that their indignation or the final period of their indignation is coming to an end, we have this sealing of this 144,000. And then once that final period of the indignation is over, after that, Messiah atones for their sin and ushers in everlasting righteousness. And I'm going to tip my hand now. Where more naturally do these seals fall in this timeline here? Or period, the final period of the indignation. I'm already tipping my hand. When the first seal is broken, we are at the beginning of the final period of the indignation. I'm not going to go far to say right now that that period is seven years. I haven't arrived there yet. And we know that within this period of the indignation, there are blocks of time. We have the career of the two witnesses for three and a half years. And we also have the career, I didn't say anti-God, anti for three and a half years. I don't know how that's all going to play out, but we know that where John's vision is going to fill in the blanks is towards the end of this timeline. I'll refer back to this as we move forward. And as far as our key learnings from Daniel, do we got this by now? And all end times prophecy is centered around the people of Israel, the land of Israel, and it will involve Mediterranean nations, the Middle East, Europe, North Africa. Here's where our spiritual senses should be heightened, not to mention the sacrifices are going on again. But there's, Daniel describes, there's going to be this holy covenant involving Mediterranean nations in Israel. Presumably, permission granted for the Jews to rebuild the third temple, or at least minimally reinstitute the animal sacrifices. Our Lord warned us that there's going to be false prophets and messiahs making great claims, performing signs and wonders. There's going to be dispute and wars between Mediterranean nations primarily, including over the Holy Covenant. I'm talking about more of the end times prophecy, not to say that other nations can't continue to rise up against each other. To be, when we're talking about end times implications, more so concerning these Mediterranean nations. Another thing to look out for, once those animal sacrifices have ceased and whoever Israel's prime minister is at that time is given to the hand of another world leader. And of course, the most telling of them all, once there is this destruction of Israel and there's the erection 
of the abomination of desolation in the temple. And I want to also mention, last but not least, from our key learnings. When you read the book of Daniel, this is how it ends. The angel tells Daniel, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. With that, here's our goal for our seven seal studies and the following studies. Our goal is to allow Daniel's vision to set the stage. We're going to consider the Olivet Discourse, Paul's epistles, and if there's any other scriptures that we come across, but I want to give attention to our Lord's great Olivet Discourse. Paul had things to say concerning the end as well. And our goal is I want to determine the likely interpretation of the four writers spoken of in the first four seals. And I'll say this right now. It's contrary to popular opinion. And I will explain and argue why. Another goal of ours is to determine how we can know if and when we are in any of these seal prophecies. As I mentioned, we're not going to understand everything and how it all comes together, but I will at least within these seal prophecies, here's where you can know that first seal has been broken and is coming to pass. I mean, in prophetic vision, it's already been broken. John was allowed to see to the future, even to the end, but it still hasn't played itself out in time. So we will know at least when this first seal was broken. I'm going to say, look for this, because that's what the Scripture at least made it clear where it's distinct in and of itself. And also one of our goals is to determine how each seal implicates certain groups. How is Israel implicated? How is the church implicated? How is the world or people in it implicated? How are angels implicated? And how is this earth implicated? That's part of our goal as we start to go through these seal visions. Are you ready for us to set the stage now? So what I'm, my goal for today is I'm going to set the stage and then we're going to come back next week. But the stage is set and propped up. After our countless studies and hours that have been poured in, here's where I'm inclined and more comfortable in Daniel's visions as laying the foundation for these seal visions that John has. Remember Daniel, he said he saw in a night vision four winds stirring up the great sea. In these seal visions, the four horsemen were conjured up by the four living creatures. Where I've landed is that when Daniel saw the four winds stirring up the great sea, it was the four living creatures or the four angels that they summoned in Revelation 6. Here's what that means. That the rider on the white horse, it coincides with this beast, the first beast, this, e this lion with eagle's wings. Meaning, with Daniel setting the stage and the scene, the Lion King and his vision came to power when the first seal was broken. And since the fourth beast in Daniel's vision doesn't arrive until Revelation 13, the beast from the sea, it must mean that the first seal 
Through the seventh trumpet, it encompasses all four beasts in Daniel's vision. And allow me to show this to you, and hopefully this will make it clear. I'm setting the stage. So here we have the seven seals. And in the first four seals, we have a rider on a colored horse for the first four. When the seventh seal is broken, then seven trumpets were given to seven angels. And there was silence in heaven, it says, for half an hour. And then when we get to the end of the seventh trumpet, that's when the beast from the sea and the earth arrive on the scene in Revelation 13. Here's how I try to depict how Daniel's vision and John's vision is framing this. When that first seal is broken, because it coincides with Daniel's vision, he saw the four winds stirring up the great sea. And we have the four living creatures summoning each of these four figures. Then that places a connection or an association with that first king in the first four beasts of Daniel's vision, aligning with that first seal. Then, as these other kings rise to power after, we know that this fourth king, who will become a fourth kingdom, comprised of ten kings, of which three, the first three kings will be uprooted by the little horn. That doesn't happen until the seventh trumpet, which must mean that the beasts that Daniel saw in his vision starts from the breaking of the first seal and at least takes us to even the blowing of the seventh trumpet. King one hasn't happened yet. I'm going to use scripture to affirm that. We've, in our past studies, I've shared with us a lot of interpretations out there, a lot of popular ones, that the lion with eagle's wings is either Babylon or Media Persia or some other country or nation. And that has already happened in the past. I'm going to refer to it at the end. It is not in the past. It is at the end, towards the end of history. But to set the stage, the breaking of the first seal, lions with eagle's wings, there is this association taking us to ultimately this fourth king who will become a fourth kingdom. And that will take us from the first seal to the seventh trumpet. Here's what coincides with that. Remember, I brought up Hosea. These four beasts that Daniel saw in vision, what are its purpose? And I told us they were God's instrument in punishing his people Israel. And here's the support for that in Hosea 13, verses 5 through 9. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. So I'll be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of their cubs. Robber for cubs. I will tear open their chests and I will devour them like a lioness. All four beasts that Daniel saw in vision have been mentioned. Verse 9, or he says in the end of verse 8, as a wild beast would tear them, It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. I'm going to take that, and I'm going to add to the framing of Daniel's and John's vision. The beginning of Israel's destruction, the ball will start rolling, if you will, at that breaking of the first seal. 
And I pointed here, remember, what's going to happen from that bre- the breaking of the first seal forward are those things, our key learnings from our Daniel series. But this sets the stage for the seals followed by the trumpets and then followed by the bulls. And here's the summary of what was just said. The setting of Daniel's four beast vision takes us to the Mediterranean Sea and its surrounding countries. And the four winds in Daniel's four beast vision could very well be the four living creatures summoning these four horsemen. Which means when the first seal is broken, it's going to start with the Lion King rising to power and arriving on the scene. And this was the important key. When that first seal is broken, it's the starting point of the final period of the indignation. Here's another concluding comment. I think we can get this. At the end of Daniel, prophecy is sealed. You can even say, at the breaking of the first seal, prophecy is unsealed. Meaning, these seven seals is the unconcealment and unsealing of the end times. I want to ask us, the seven seals is the unsealing of the end times, beginning with who again? Israel. And the land of Israel. The people of Israel and the land of Israel. So these seven seals is surrounding the punishment of God and His people in what is also known as this period of the final indignation. And let me ask us another question. That sealed book, what does it contain again? What were the contents in the book? Speak up. Judgments. Judgments. Lamentations. Mourning. And woe. Beginning with the people and land of Israel. Now that the stage is set, I think we're ready to open up this vision and prophecy and see where it takes us. Thanks for listening to Truth Matters Church today, and we deeply appreciate you studying along with us. Next time, we will open Revelation chapter 6 with a look at the breaking of the first seal and the four horsemen. We encourage you to check out our website for much more biblical teaching, truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.